Father, we are thankful to you, thankful for you, for your Son. We thank you for your Spirit. Thank you for your Word. Thank you for your people. We thank you for truth. Lord, we ask that you would open up your Word to us by the power of your Spirit, that which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and direct us towards your Son greater clarity and more affection. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so the question that we have this morning so far is uh, a very, it's a very good question, and it actually unintentionally addresses two issues. And you'll see what I I mean, Lord willing, shortly. So here's the question. Uh, what is the meaning of Matthew 18, 18 through 19? So let's turn to Matthew 18. <clears throat> Matthew 18, verse 18 says this Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. I've heard people talk about binding things here on earth and loosing them. Um, So I can't think of an example, but I've heard among uh, mainly more charismatic groups, are they properly using this scripture? So the idea of binding and loosing. Anybody ever heard those, those terms before? Right? Um, so he, I, I looked for some examples since the questioner said that she, they couldn't think of any. And here's two. This one is from the College of Prayer. Uh, it says, one of the principles of the kingdom taught by the College of Prayer is the binding and loosing of spirits. It says the binding of spirits is the exercise of jurisdictional authority and power given by the Lord Jesus Christ to his church in order to restrict, restrain, prohibit, or prevent the activity, influence, and control of a spirit. The loosing of a spirit is the exercise. Oh, actually, it just says it twice. So that's the college of prayer, and they say binding and loosing has to do with spirits. Um, and then a popular name, some of you all have heard Kenneth Copeland before, false teacher. Uh, he says, as you enforce the authority vested in the church, speak directly to the devil. Exercise your religion in Jesus' work at Calvary. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he stripped Satan of his authority over mankind. That authority has been delegated to the body of Christ in the earth. Bind the devil in the name of Jesus. So, is this teaching us to bind and loose spirits, demons, the devil himself? Well, first, I'd like to uh, direct your attention before we actually dive into Matthew 18 to two passages of Scripture. One is Jude uh, verses 8 and 9.
which says, Yet, in like manner, these people, also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So there are circles, some of us come out of them, where it is uh, not just practice, but actually taught, as we saw with Kenneth Copeland saying that you need to speak directly to the devil and the College of Prayer and many circ- you know, circles like it says that this is something that is um, given to you, this authority over demons by the Lord, and you are supposed to um, practice that authority by binding and loosing spirits. That's what they say here, uh, that you can rebuke the devil, bind him, talk directly to him. And yet here, the scripture says in Jude that even the archangel Michael did not take it upon himself to pronounce a uh, blasphemous judgment upon the devil, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Uh, Satan, the Lord rebuke you. And this is what we see also in Zechariah 3. Um, Then he showed me, verse 1, Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? So from the Old Testament, in that passage there in Zechariah, there is an angel there standing. Uh, That's the one who actually gets the vestments and puts them on Joshua, takes off the dirty robes. That angel does not pronounce, the Lord rebuke you. That angel does not do any binding, any loosing. And Jude, it is pronounced that this is sinful, that these people have no respect for authorities. Peter basically repeats the same thing. And so we do not see a a pattern or a practice in Scripture of any human being or even an angel for that matter um, rebuking the devil or binding the devil. And looking at this language of binding and loosing, we, we see it actually before we even get to Matthew 18. We see it in Matthew 16. And so Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20, is where this language first comes up in our... New Testament. And you all are, again, very familiar with these passages. Matthew 16, 13, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And anybody know, what does Peter mean? Rock, right? I tell you, you are Peter. Here's a bit of play on words as our Lord speaks. You are Peter, you're a little rock, and upon this rock, and what is that rock? 
that confession of Christ and who He is. The, the, I mean, this is why we are Christians. Christ is central to all that we are, all that we believe, all that we have. The Gospel is all about Christ. Upon this rock, the rock of the confession of who Christ is, not Peter, as the Catholic system would have you believe, uh, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever, here it is, you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, question, um, where does Jesus speak about spirits in this passage? Who can point to the verse? Do you see any talk of spirits in this passage? Anybody? No. So we have to ask, where does that come from? Uh, secondly, the thing that we want to be asking is, if this is indeed talking about binding spirits on earth, then why are we loosing them in heaven? So... The demons are are restricted, they're bound, they're unable to do certain things, but then we come across later and we let them loose, and so they're running loose in heaven. Um, And if we bound them, then we're the same ones who loose them, and why would we be loosing demons in heaven? Something is not right about this, something is not adding up. Aside from the fact that there's no language of spirits in this passage, the very logic of it doesn't line up, and then the practice of calling out demons is forbidden, prohibited in the Scripture. Uh, But we come to our uh, ultimate passage, the one that was asked about specifically, Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Again, the question we want to be asking is, is there any talk, any language, any reference, any possibility that this is referring to spirits, demons, fallen angels, or the devil himself. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Anything about spirits here? No demons, no angels. What is this talking about? This has, um, you know, this, this passage explains the process of what is called church discipline. So when the Lord calls out his people, he calls them out of the world and He makes them holy. The church is the place, the very word itself, the called out ones, is the place of the holy ones. 
That's what saints means. We're called out. We're set apart for the master's use. These are the people who are filled with the spirit, who have the name of Christ, who love the Lord, who love his people, who obey the word. We are supposed to be lights and salt to this dark world. We are supposed to stand out. We are supposed to be um, distinct from the world. Well, that doesn't mean that the Christian is perfect, right? Uh, The righteous man falls how many times? Seven. It gets back up. Um, We stumble in many ways. The reality is that, uh, as it says in 1 John, my little children, I write these things to you so that you do not sin. But if any of you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The reality is that the Christian is being sanctified. The Christian is growing in holiness, growing more and more into the image of Christ. So the Christian still does sin. And as believers, when we are um, fellowshipping with one another, we are rubbing shoulders, we're in each other's lives, we are going to see one another's sin, right? And when we see one another's sin, what are we supposed to do? With love and remembering Matthew 7, we remember our own log before we talk about someone else's speck. But when we see one another's sin, what are we supposed to do? Bring it to them. Right. And this actually lays out how we are supposed to do that. And so the first thing that you do in Matthew 18, what we see here is you go to that person by themselves, just you and them alone. And you bring the sin. It's not your preference. It's not your opinion. They have done something that God forbids or they are not doing something that God commands. They are sinning. And you bring to them God's word and their behavior and you in love and gentleness, as Galatians uh, 6 tells us, that in the spirit of gentleness, you're seeking to bring them out of that. How they respond to that is going to tell you what uh, happens next. Lord willing, when you bring the word of God to a child of God, their immediate response is going to be, what? Repentance. Yeah. Uh, sorrow, apologies, confession. Amen. However, that doesn't always happen. If he does not listen to you, or rather, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Praise the Lord. Doesn't need to go anywhere else. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. That every charge, so again, you're bringing a charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. You have to see the love as well as the wisdom of the Lord in this design here. Because you know what? Maybe I'm getting it wrong. Maybe I'm not seeing it right. Maybe my perception is off. Maybe I need to hear from someone else who also loves the word and loves this brother or sister. So they come in. They hear the case. Uh, As Paul said uh, in Corinthians, you know, look, you're going to judge angels. Isn't there someone among you that can, you know, handle these matters of judgment? We don't need to go to unbelievers to settle things that take place in the body of Christ. So here you bring in one or two others, unbiased. They're going to hear the case. They're going to hear the scripture. They're going to hear the charge. And they will be able to say, you know what, brother? Actually, you don't have a case against this brother. He's done no wrong. Or actually, brother, sister, uh, you are in sin and we are bringing the same verses. In fact, we have some more verses that would just compound this. We call you in love to repent of this sin. Now, if they respond to them, praise the Lord, you've gained your brother, you've gained your sister. But that does not always happen. 
Sometimes even with one coming, even with two, three, four coming, they still will not repent. They are staying in their sin. They're refusing to listen. If he refuses to listen to them, now it goes to the next step where we tell it to the church. And this would be done, and sadly I've had to be a part of these things far more than I would desire to. Um, An announcement is made to the church. Uh, Brothers and sisters, brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so is engaged in this activity. They were you know, confronted about this. Brothers and sisters have gone to them. They brought the word to them. They are refusing to repent. So I am calling you all. We as the elders of this church are calling you all to go after them. Call them. Visit them. Uh, take time. Go see them. Call them to repent. There's no time uh, frame given here. It doesn't say wait one day, wait one week. Uh, some churches wait too long. Some take it too short. Uh, but we're, we're seeking to be as gracious and generous as possible here while never minimizing the sin that has been committed. Now, again, Lord willing, with so much love and so much truth coming to someone who claims to love the Lord Jesus and His Word, they are going to respond with conviction. They're going to respond with brokenness. They're going to respond like David did when Nathan said, Thou art the man. Uh, David was immediately cut to the heart. And so, Lord willing, that is how the response is. However, sadly, that does not always happen. And so, the Lord instructs His disciples If he refuses to listen even to the church, then what do you do? Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And these these labels, a Gentile, a tax collector, is considered they're not believers. They're acting in every way as though they don't know the Lord. Uh, Again, a tax collector in that day was pretty much the most horrible thing that could be said about a Jew because of how wickedly and how um, selfishly and greedily they have treated their own people to uh, get gain for themselves. And so, and again, a, a Gentile would be anyone who was outside of the covenant of Israel. You just treat them like they're a sinner. So if they act as though they don't love the Word, they don't love the Lord, they don't love the people of God, then the church has a responsibility to do something. And here is where we get our our verse. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. So what is the the subject here that is being bound? It is the unrepentant individual. It is the sinning uh, professor of Christ. The one who says that they are a brother. The one who says that they are a sister. But with so much... Bible and love and correction being brought to them, they refuse to repent. Very strong word. They refuse. They reject repentance. They reject the community. They reject the truth. And they want to remain in their sin. And when that happens, the church, God has given authority to the church to, as it says in 1 Corinthians 5, to deliver that person to Satan. Very, very serious thing. And when that is done, that person is outside of the benefits of being within the community of faith. They are put outside with the hope that their flesh 
will be so uh, attacked. Um, in fact, let's go to 1 Corinthians 5 to get the exact language. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is, the, is a, a case of church discipline being enacted in Corinth. There was a, there was a man who was living in sexual sin, even in a way that the Gentiles would be shocked. He was having his father's wife as his own, and the church was thinking it was loving to tolerate such behavior. And Paul made it very clear that not only is that not loving, it is sinful, and he gave them command. So, uh, 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 2, he says, And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. This passage in Matthew 18 is speaking of judgment. The judgment that God has given power to the church to enact. And here we see an example of it being done. Um, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So the, the, the hope, the hope, and this sadly in my experience is rarely, it rarely happens. The person who refuses to repent is put out. They're put out of the church. They're not able to come and worship with us. They're not able to take the Lord's Supper. They're not able to come to the fellowship. They are to be separated from the the community of faith, from the body of Christ, and not allowed to come to any meetings, uh, as it says here in uh, 1 Corinthians 5. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of And here is that unrepentant sin, sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So that's where that um, understanding of how we are to practice church discipline comes in right here from 1 Corinthians 5. So we're not even to eat with such a one. We're not to go over their house. We're not to spend time. They are to feel the coldness that they might run back to the warmth. Uh, They are to feel what it's like to be back in the world under the power or rather at the mercy of Satan who is unmerciful that their flesh might be uh, destroyed, not literally, but that their flesh might feel the, the weight of not repenting of their sin so that his spirit may be saved in the last day. And what I said is rare to see is for that person to come back. I mean, how many of you have, have seen someone who was put out 
excommunicated under the discipline of the church and seen that person return repentant? How many of you have ever seen that? How many of you, is it rare to see such a thing? It's a sad thing. But that is the hope, that that person is going to feel it, see it, remember the goodness and the mercy and the grace that comes from walking close to the Lord and with his people, and they will flee from their sin and come running back in repentance. And the great joy of joy is when we bring them back, which is uh, what we understand happened to this very man, which is talked about in 2 Corinthians, that Paul said that, you know, you were severe and I'm glad and now you know, restore, right? Because that person responded with repentance. So the binding is that that person, because they're outside, they are not able to, uh, you know, they, they pray to the Lord for something. And the Lord has one response to that prayer, repent, go back. Um, this is what is said in, in John 20, where the Lord says, um, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. In what context? In the context of the discipline of the church. So someone is bound on earth. God looks at that and says, as the church, you followed my word. You've made a judgment. And heaven itself gives a stamp of approval on that individual and that judgment. And when they return, praise the Lord, then, and we as the church say, you are free from this. It's no longer on you. God is blessed and given grace and you responded. Praise the Lord. His kindness has led to repentance. Then the Lord in heaven says, amen, and I also approve and loose this individual from being outside of the camp, as it were. That is the context and that is the meaning of binding and loosing. And the reason why I said in the beginning that this kind of captures two things is because this verse that follows, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And this is often used to talk about prayer meetings, right? Um, However, what's the context talking about? Church discipline. And so this is speaking of this judgment. This is speaking of the authority that God has given to his church to do such amazing things that we could actually um, put someone outside of the church and say, you're not welcome to come back until you repent. And it's not just this local church, but any, any church that is the true church of the living God They are not welcome there either. If they go to another local congregation um, and, you know, Lord willing, there's going to be some type of pastoral. Hey, where did you come from? Um, What church did you come from? You know, there's going to be some communication between these pastors and say, is this person under the discipline of the church? If so, they are not welcome here either. And so this person, uh, you think of like the, the child who runs away from home, right? Uh, They ran away from home, and what they need to do is return back home, but they want to go to their friend's house because my friend's going to let me spend the night. But you go over there, and the friend says, "Uh, no, you can't stay here. You need to go home. So, you know, I'm going to try to go to another friend's house. Nope, you can't come here. You need to go home. All doors are shut except home, and the only way you can come back home is you've come home in repentance. And what this does is it, it removes the accusation that the church is just full of, Starts with an H, hypocrites. 
And why do people say that? Because they see people who profess Christ continue in sin and nothing is ever said to them. Nothing is ever done. And it seems as though the church permits, puts up with, applauds, approves of wickedness. And that uh, puts dirt on the name of Christ. It hinders the, 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 the work of the church because now people are saying, well, I don't want to go there. They're no different than we are. That's not true. When church discipline is lovingly and, 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 and rightly uh, practiced, it keeps the church pure and it looks out in love for the person who claims to be a Christian but is going on an unrepentant sin. It's not loving to let the person who continue in unrepentant sin to just continue to carry the name of Christ and enjoy all the benefits as one who is actually walking with the Lord. It gives them a false assurance. It makes them think that I can continue in my sin and God is good with me. And that's not true. It's loving to tell them you are in danger and you need to repent. And if you won't repent, then we have to take it to the next step. Okay, so does that uh, bring up any other questions about that? Is there? Yes, ma'am. So with, how would that apply to the home? Or to, to mm, great question. Family yeah. Excellent question. Yeah, so the scripture in 1 Corinthians 5 says you're not even to eat with such a one. But what if you live in the same house? What if it's your husband? What if it's your wife? What if it's your children? What if it's your parents? Then what? I mean, do we, okay, I'm supposed to submit to my husband, but I'm not supposed to eat with him. And if he says to eat with me, then do I disobey scripture? How does that work? Um, So what we understand, especially... um, And get my scripture Rolodex going there. Um, we have an example of in is it First Peter? First Peter Verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, uh, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold, jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And this doesn't say... Uh, whether or not this person is a believer or unbeliever, or if it's a believer under discipline, the only um, phrase that we have here about this husband is that he doesn't obey the word. And the person in Matthew 18 
would fall under that category of not obeying the word. They're not responding. They're not repenting. And so it's, uh, it, it is a bit mm, subjective how this is handled. Different churches take it to different um, levels. But when someone is in the same house, the, the, the understanding is that you are you're not able to disobey a verse of Scripture to obey a verse of Scripture. Right? You're, you're, the wife is not to disrespect her husband or not submit to her husband in order to practice the discipline of the church. Um, the husband is not to be harsh with his wife in order to practice the discipline of the church. Children are not given freedom to disobey their parents because they're acting as an unbeliever. We're to treat this person as a Gentile and a tax collector. We're to treat them as though they are lost. And in order to um, love those who are lost, we are to give the gospel to them. We are to be gospel lights in their life. And if that's the situation that you are in, then you are given a, an opportunity to shine the light of Christ. Um, and I mean, I'll, I'll just shoot straight with you. It is, it is a challenge. And we've had to do this in families. And it is, it is a great challenge to the believer in that situation. And there are ways in which um, think of the dinner table, for example. You sit at the dinner table and you all eat together. But when it comes to um, fellowship, you know, can we have believers come over and can we just fellowship? Sometimes the, 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 the spouse under discipline tries to get in that way. And that is when the, the uh, believing spouse, the obedient to the Lord's spouse, would say, uh, actually, out of love for your soul and out of obedience to this, um, it is better that I go to fellowship rather than bringing fellowship to our home. And depending on that, you know, spouse, that can become problematic or they understand it. And usually if someone is under the discipline of the church, they do respect it. They understand it. They get, you know, there's consequences that I brought upon myself. Um, but does anyone have any other insight into that? It, it is a sticky thing. Anybody been in that situation where you've seen that and something else was done? Right. And again, if it's practiced biblically, think of all the steps that have been gone through to try to get them to respond with repentance. One on one, two or three, the whole church. Um, I mean, that's a very powerful when many people are calling you and visiting you and reaching out to you and they're spending time with you. And they're pleading with you, tears, prayer meetings, your name is being brought up. I mean, 
to refuse all of that is a very hardened heart. And the Lord is kind to let you feel the consequences of your sin so that one of two things are going to happen. It's going to be revealed that you were never a believer in the first place. And sadly, that is usually what ends up taking place. Now, if that person drops their profession and they say, okay, I'm not a Christian. Okay, if you're not a Christian, then come on. But as long as you hold your profession, which is amazing how many people will hold on to their profession. They'll continue to call themselves a brother or a sister no matter how far they go out into the darkness. And that's what Paul says. Anyone who basically carries the name brother or sister while they're living in this way, you're not to have any fellowship with them, not even to eat. So that is like down to the smallest interaction. You can't even eat with such a one, let alone have a prayer meeting with them or a Bible study with them. Uh, as you said, they have heard more than enough truth and what they need is to repent. Now, if, if they call you and say, uh, I am really convicted about my sin and and." Can, can, can you help me? Can you talk with me? Then how does the church respond to that? Go to the elders. Call the elders. Meet with them. Sit with them. And, uh, and, and that is how. that The church is always um, encouraging towards this reconciliation. And when that person, Lord willing, repents, again, it is a wonderful and joyous thing. I've seen it happen maybe three times maybe about 30 cases. But praise the Lord for those three times. Any other? Please, yeah. Right. Really, really good question. Thank you. And I, you asked it earlier, but I didn't address it, so I apologize for that. There are people, um, family, extended family, that you may see once or twice a year, especially during the holidays and things like that. And these people carry a profession of faith, especially in the South. Right? Everybody's a Christian in, in Texas, it seems, uh, according to their profession. But you know their life. You know the reality that they don't live it. Uh, what do you do here? And again, I would say let your, let your convictions and your conscience drive you there. Um, for some, they say, no, this is speaking to the local church, and you can't do church discipline uh, with anyone and everyone who carries the name of Christ. That's, that's impossible. This is, you, you can only put someone out of a local congregation in order for them to be able to return to that local congregation. Uh, and others would say, no, anyone who carries the name of Christ and in any way, if they say that they're a Christian, but I know that they're living in immorality, then I'm going to treat them according to their confession and treat them as though they are an unbeliever and I'm not going to have anything to do with them. And others would say, well, I know that they carry it, but I know the reality that there's nothing to it. There's never been any consistency to it. It is just a profession and therefore, I'm just going to treat them like an unbeliever 
and bring the gospel to them. Um, and each, each individual needs to be fully convinced in their own mind how they deal with such, you know, sticky situations there. Um, but we have to be very careful to not to not get in the way of what the Lord is doing by the prodigal son has said that no one gave anything to him he felt his hunger and returned to his father's house as long as people are giving you food along the way you won't feel your hunger and you don't want to be one of the ones who gives food to the one who is meant to feel their hunger that they would run back to the father's house Again, I know the prodigal son is not talking about a backslidden person. It's talking about salvation itself, but there's a principle there, I think, for us. Does anybody have any other insight into this that may be helpful for the rest of us? Yeah. Um, well, the very important thing to remember, which we know, is that the pastor is first a Christian, right? And so uh, the discipline of the church is for all believers, all people who would call uh, themselves Christians. And yet, um, Paul says, this is Second Timothy, um, receive no charge against an elder. My Bible scholars, somebody help me out. Is this Second Timothy? Is it first? Okay, yes, thank you. So starting with verse 17, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborers deserve his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now that sounds familiar to Matthew 18, right? After you go to someone, just you and them, what's the next step? To take, and it gives us that, let it, you know, every charge stand on the evidence of what? Two or three witnesses. So it's actually a very similar situation that we have here. Um, as for those who persist in sin, I refuse to repent. Rebuke them in the presence of all. Tell it to the church. 
so that the rest may stand in fear. So, in one sense, uh, yes, it is different because it's more high profile. Um, This person, this, this leader who is persisting in sin and refusing to repent even though you've, you've gone to them. Listen, I in no way, no elder, no pastor, bishop, all means the same thing, is above the standard of Holy Scripture. So if you see me in any sinful activity, you have a responsibility as a believer to come to me um, about that sin. And when it comes to... Um, admitting a charge, this is when the church is informed about this. And somebody could just not like the pastor. Uh, the pastor may have corrected somebody in a counseling session, or they didn't like a sermon, or they don't like certain things he's doing, and so they bring an accusation. They bring slander, a gossip. So it needs to be established that two or three other people see the exact same thing. They can bring evidence. They can say, this is not just one person making something up. Here's evidence and two or three others. And those people are to go to that elder and confront that person about their sin. But if they persist, if they will not repent, then the entire church is to be made aware with a public rebuke, which is, again, very similar to what we see in Matthew 18. It's a very serious thing to admit a charge against an elder. Um, but it's not an impossible thing. And there are pastors and elders who have been in their position far too long because people feel like they're not supposed to or they're not allowed to bring anything against an elder because they're in a special status. Um, it's a very serious thing, and this is the way to do it. But Paul rebuked Peter for all time, we have that account, right, in Galatians, that he publicly rebuked Peter for him leading others to not walk in a manner that is consistent with the gospel. And that keeps us safe when the Scripture is the standard for all of us. When no one is above it, we are safe. And we get into trouble when someone either explicitly or in lifestyle believes themselves above Scripture. And there are people who are very good at, um, you know, you bring a correction to them and they point out something about you. Because there is no corrector who is perfectly correct. Everyone who brings a correction has sinned themselves. And if all you have to do is, well, you've sinned in this way, and now it takes attention off of that person, then they could feel good. They could get out of that. But the thing is that when we're talking about church discipline, heaven itself is a part of this. And that's not something you can argue your way out of. Pastors included. Any other thoughts or any questions? Or any of that? Okay. Binding and loosing, nothing to do with devils, nothing to do with spirits. Arrogant and blasphemous for people to think of that. The only one who will bind the devil is who? 
Jesus, Revelation, right? He will be bound a thousand years. Now, depending on where your eschatological views come in, that's happening now. It will happen in the future. I don't want to get into that right now. The main thing is who does the binding, and it is the Lord. The Lord is the only one who binds the devil. He's the only one who releases him for a time as well. Okay. That's our time. Is it time? It's time. All right, Father, help us to to be faithful to one another's souls. Help us, Father, to not shrink back from loving and humble correction. Help us to not resist the one who corrects us. Help us, Father, to be obedient to your word even when it is difficult, even when it is challenging, even when it's uncomfortable. Help us, Father, to have your glory in our minds as the primary focus of all that we do. Help us to love one another and not give people false assurance by letting them continue in unrepentant sin because we don't want to hurt their feelings. May we think of their eternal soul and the good of the church. Let us remove the leaven that the whole lump not become leavened. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen.